rising. Uh, we have an update on the situation in Ukraine. The New York Times has actually confirmed that the atrocities previously reported to have been committed by Russian forces in Ukraine, they are authentic. By cross-referencing older satellite footage with new closer-up video, the New York Times was able to confirm that. According to the, t the Times, this confirms that the slaying of these civilians in the streets occurred during the Russian occupation of the region in March, not afterward. That the bodies laid undiscovered for over three weeks, which is just horrifying. President Zelensky is set to address Russia's possible war crimes before the United Nations Security Council later today and again asked for further Western intervention. Now, this comes after the Pentagon allocated an additional $300 million in military assistance to Ukraine late last week, this time in the form of laser-guided rocket systems, drones, ammunition, night vision devices, tactical security communication systems, medical supplies, and armored vehicles. Joining me now to discuss is Deputy Opinion Editor at Newsweek, Bacha Ungar-Sargan. Bacha, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. So I, the Times uh, said they looked at satellite footage and confirmed that actually those people uh, were killed you know, during the period of the Russian occupation before Russians left. And I saw that the, the Pentagon said they had not independently done their own confirmation, but they had no reason to you know, distrust what the, what the Times had done. And I know, you know, I know some people watching us now will say, oh, but you, know, you guys are, are very critical of the mainstream media, of the New York Times. And, and I, that's true. They get things wrong all the time. But so how do you, you know, how do you respond to that kind of thinking? Because I, I try to tell people, look, you shouldn't automatically distrust something you read in mainstream media. You should try to verify it on your own if you can, because they do get things wrong. So it's, it's wrong to have an attitude of blind faith. But that doesn't mean like literally every word you're going to encounter is a lie. And some people, I think, have that impression. I think that's exactly right, Robbie. Um, you know, there have been stories that have come out during this war um, that have later, you know, sometimes very soon after, um, proven to be um, not the case. You know, there was the ghost of Kiev that you had, mm -hmm. you know, all of these journalists reporting on. There was Zelensky telling us that a nuclear reactor had been hit. That turned out not to be the case. In this case, the New York Times looked at satellite imagery that you yourself can look at and see that many of those bodies have been on the ground for three weeks, which, you know, in addition to the horror of how they were killed, many of them executed with their arms tied behind their backs. The idea of the desecration of the dead lying out there for all that time. I mean, it, it's truly horrific. And um, so I think that, you know, when you have a video of a satellite image that you yourself can watch, you know, nobody's asking you, you know, who are you going to believe me or your lying eyes? Look at the, the footage yourself. Mm -hmm. And you can see that many of those bodies, not all of them, but many of them have been out there um, for three weeks. And um, it, it really is uh, um, horrific. It is very clearly evidence of a war crime. There's a man lying there amidst his, his potatoes, his shopping on the ground around his body. It was clearly you know, presenting no threat to anybody. And, you know, just it adds to the to, to the list of um, atrocities that have happened during this invasion. Uh, there was a story on CNN that I heard earlier this morning um, about a woman whose husband was just known as the most pro-Ukraine guy in their town. The Russians, you know, rounded him up, tortured him and killed him. And he was a school teacher. You know, so we're hearing more and more stories about that. And and I agree with you, Robbie. I agree with viewers who, who are saying, you know, this, the mainstream media has gotten a lot of this wrong. That is true. Uh, but you can verify a lot of this. You can wait for a minute. You can halt your own emotional response and say, okay, what is true and what is not true? And I think even then there is still another question of 
And what should we do with this, given that we know it? You know, I think there is still a reasonable debate to be had about that. What well, do you think, Robbie? Yeah. Yeah. yeah abs- right. Absolutely. And y- you can say, I, you know, I'm looking at this. It, it's horrifying. It, it looks to me like pretty uh, credible evidence of of horrific conduct on, on the part of Russia. Now, th- these are claims still that need to be, you know, adjudicated through the proper channels, whether that's, you know, international human rights courts, that kind of thing. It, it, it doesn't, we shouldn't jump to, you know, we being the U.S. Army doesn't mean, well, now, oh, yeah, well, well we, we see the body, so we have to roll in there. Like, we can still think it through. We can still be cautious and evaluate, you know, from the standpoint of our government, because the last thing you know, we want to do is start, we don't want to start a war at all. We don't want to be involved in a war. We don't want to start World War III. And we don't want to do it under pretenses that, that end up being wrong because you don't, it's the fog of war. It's confusing. It is, it is almost without a doubt that there have been atrocities committed on the other side as well because war is an atrocity and terrible things happen. So it's still on us to be very rational and sober-minded and try and do everything we can to not escalate further, you know, which is why, while I'm sympathetic to Zelensky and I understand what he's saying and he's advocating for his country and that I think is perfectly logical and honorable, it's still on us, you know, to resist escalating this further. And in fact, to do everything we can to empower Zelensky to reach some kind of uh, accords with, with Putin to end this because it's, it's horrifying. They're destroying the entire country. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, You know, right now there's a lot of pressure being put on President Biden, who has called this war crimes, to call this genocide. And and the White House has resisted, and I think that that is accurate and correct. I mean, not every instance of Mm -hmm. even mass war crimes makes a genocide. And in fact, a lot of the people who were killed in Mariupol are ethnic Russians. And so I think it really doesn't make sense to, to call that any kind of genocide, right? I mean, the Russians mm-hmm. aren't, you know, committing genocide against Russians, right? They are committing war crimes and atrocities during a war. Um, but I think that it is really important to resist always going, you know, escalating right. even in our rhetoric to the next degree. I think the White House has shown remarkable restraint given how much bipartisan pressure there is to escalate in this case. So I think, you know, there's a lot to criticize President Biden about. But in this case, it seems that he has made a decision about where the line is in terms of what we should be doing. And it seems to me that he's doing what you are recommending, which I agree with as well, which is empowering President Zelensky to the best of our ability to autonomously to whatever degree to take on this Russian invasion and defend his people. Well, and it, it's interesting that you mentioned, yeah, the, the genocide term, because to me, th- that shows how you know, some in modern liberals can only talk about conflict in terms of racial conflict and ethnic conflict. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's sometimes right. There is tremendous racial and ethnic conflict throughout history and across the globe, but not you know every time two countries are at, are at war, it is not always about race. <laughs> it, it, it can be about totally different things. And like this, right, this is a case where, you know, I mean, race is not totally uninvolved, but it, it's not it's not as it's not nearly as simple as, well, they're just trying to, like, exterminate all these people because they look differently. Like, it's so much more complicated than that. And and to, you know, it's our own lack of awareness or knowledge or just trying to, you know, kind of observe every conflict through the only the only lens or the only way we have to look at these things right now. 
I think that is such a smart point, Robbie, because you're you're 100% correct. We only see things as Americans, you know, we tend to see things through this racial lens and through this lens of, you know, powerful versus powerless, when what we're seeing here is a less powerful army, a much more powerful army that, that invaded, right, that did mm-hmm. use its power in this horrific way, is continuing to use its, its you know, it has more power than the Ukrainian army, um, to use that power to commit atrocities, but you're totally right. The the Ukrainians are far from an ethnic minority within Russia that has no defenses. They are mounting an astonishingly powerful defense, something that, you know, we can really admire the heroism of the Ukrainian people as they stand up to this incursion, as they stand up to these war crimes and to the power of of the Russian army without, you know, erasing that, right? right? And I think that, you know, we've talked about this before that, you know, in so many ways, the rhetoric, the media, the politicians are undermining something really important that we should actually be bolstering, which is Ukraine's autonomy, Ukraine's own sovereignty, which is the reason that we are, you know, that we're talking about this in the first place, because their sovereignty was undermined by Russia. We should be building up that sovereignty. Um, And I think still, even at this late stage, even knowing what we know about these war crimes, helping them to end this conflict as soon as possible. Right. Right. It's like saying the Hundred Years' War is an ethnic conflict. Britain and France fighting. Right, no, it's, exactly. it's, it's yeah. nationality. It's not everything mm-hmm. is not about race, but it, it is still still horrifying and, and you know, can be horrifying on its own terms and be criticized as such, you know, without trying to make everything uh, like a, describe it's everything as racial point. conflict or genocide. So, yeah, and, I, will and make I think one that's important more, yeah. to right to make those uh, those distinctions. No, so, absolutely. Bacha, it's, a, it's a great. Yeah. Point. Thank you. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, We'll have more rising right after this. Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, what else but another case of cancel culture on college campuses. This one is a real doozy. You'll like this story. Last December, Princeton University was slated to host an exhibition of 19th century Jewish American artwork provided by Leonard Milberg, who's a Princeton alum and a patron of the arts, donated over 13,000 pieces to Princeton. But Milberg pulled out of this exhibition due to disagreements with the university. In statements to the Daily Princetonian, a university spokesperson made it sound like Milberg was ultimately responsible for the exhibition not taking place. But both Milberg and the curator, art historian Samantha Baskind of Cleveland State University, tell a very different story. Princeton officials had objected to the inclusion of artwork by two 19th century Jewish Americans who had served as soldiers in the Confederate Army during the Civil War. Quote, Princeton forced the cancellation by canceling the two most important artists. Baskin, that's the curator, she told me. It would be impossible to have an accurate show about 19th century Jewish American art without its most outstanding figure, Moses Jacob Ezekiel. Indeed, a well-known piece by Ezekiel was intended to serve as the centerpiece. That work is called Faith. It's a 64-inch marble statue completed by Ezekiel in 1876. It was commissioned by a Jewish fraternal organization to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. A replica currently stands outside Philadelphia's National Museum of American Jewish History. So Ezekiel is a complicated historical figure, sure. He fought for the Confederacy and supported the Southern Lost Cause. A second artist whose work would have also been part of the exhibition, Theodore Moyes, also served in the Confederate Army. Of course, history is filled with flawed people who nevertheless made important contributions to literature, art, science, and philosophy. 
Besides, the works in question, they had nothing to do with the Confederacy, and anyway, they would have been displayed alongside labels that contextualized the artists and acknowledged their unsavory ties. History doesn't come with neat, sanitized figures, Baskin told me. Princeton canceled exactly the type of show that a university should tackle. Problems arose last October during the planning stages of the exhibition. That's when the university's vice provost for international equity and diversity became involved. The administrator wanted Ezekiel and Moyes dropped. Milberg, who has previously, as I mentioned, contributed a great deal to Princeton's collections, so he opposed the idea of modifying the showcase in order to satisfy the administrator's sensitivities. Once you start canceling things, it never ends, he told the Daily Princetonian. Baskin described Princeton's behavior as an unfortunate anti-intellectual surrender to cancel culture, and she commended Milberg for taking a stand and refusing to sponsor historical revisionism. Quote, he took a very principled stand by choosing not to fund the exhibition after the library took curatorial matters into their own hands. He disagreed with Princeton's decision to censor the show and erase history. Jonathan Sarna, a professor of Jewish American history at Brandeis University, whose work has informed the exhibition, also objected to Princeton's capitulation, the fact that two of the most important Jewish American artists of the 19th century were Confederate soldiers is something that merits conversation, not censorship, says Sarna. Quote, one approach is that we have faith in the audience. We display in full complexity the material and we talk about it, Sarna told the Religion News. The other approach is that we cancel it. I'm very reluctant to be part of the woke, cancel everything that doesn't conform to present-day morals standards. Indeed, an institution of higher education might have expressed curiosity about the intersection of these subjects, the Jewish American experience, the Civil War, and 19th century art, and invited its students to contemplate them. Princeton's impulse, unfortunately, exactly the opposite. Bury the truth. Of course, the issue here isn't really Princeton as a whole, but rather the fact that the relevant decision maker is a risk-averse diversity coordinator. As long as the Office of Institutional Equity holds sway, liberal values like academic freedom, freedom of expression, and diversity of thought will be threatened on campus. Princeton's effort to avoid any potential controversy was at the expense of a tremendous opportunity to show intriguing and exceptional art to their students and to open up crucial conversations, says Baskin. A vital learning moment was lost. And I finally did, subsequent to writing this, get the, uh, the university to offer comment to me. So a spokesperson for the university said, well, neither the library nor the university caused this exhibit to be canceled. It was canceled by the donor. So they're saying that, yeah, well, the donor canceled it because he pulled out. But he pulled out because you said, well, we, we will not have this exhibition with these two specific artists, one of whom is, like, is the notable artist in this category from this time period, who, yes, was... was, was in the Confederate Army, that's a bad thing. We can talk about that. But they actually planned to put signs next to the art explaining right. that so that you could have a conversation about how, how these figures' lives went and, and what they were a part of. So it's just it's totally ridiculous. And, uh, but that, that's what happened. And I don't want to give anybody any ideas, but so it, this made me think of Martin Heidegger, who, whose book, uh, Being in Time, is like the seminal work of continental existential philosophy. Mm -hmm. He was also a card-carrying member of the Nazi party. <laughs> like, which, yeah. uh, so... No, the, and this, future, you're right, so, this curator gave me a list of, she's like, what about, and she gave me in her comments to me, like, a bunch of people who are artists who have been showcased at Princeton who were problematic for ideology, or one was a pedophile, one was like... 
their work is displayed because we're practiced at separating the art and the artist, or at least right. contextualizing and discussing them without saying we can't look at their art. Right, and pretty much anybody from the South prior to you know, right. the antebellum period would then, anything that they created culturally would then be off limits to future generations. Did they change their school name, by the way, the Wilson School? The Wilson School, school I, they're planning to do it or they've discussed it? I don't know. I don't know, Kim, what do you think? I mean, at this rate, we're going to have to bulldoze Europe. I mean, it, you know, because <laughs> practically all the monuments in Europe, everything that we go to travel to see in Europe. Right? <laughs> yeah, well, and maybe then, maybe then those that are championing cancel culture, the woke left, I suppose, maybe then they'll start championing the bulldozing down of, you know, like the Arc de Triomphe and practically all of Italy, which was b built by Mussolini. And then you got to go after the Palestinians, too, because their mosque was, the materials were donated by Mussolini to build their mosque right. at the... Uh, Nuke the, the pyramids. So, they were built by slave labor. Right, <laughs> Maybe, I mean... I think, right? Probably. Yes. So, I mean, we could go down this road. The, the bottom line is that history is history. We're living in modern times. People shouldn't be... You know, I, I mean, I just think it's it's totally bizarre to say, well, I'm going to... We can't even see this person's work because I don't agree with their personal life, even though their personal life was however many years ago. I mean, do they really think someone's going to look at this piece of art and think, man, I really like this. So what's up with this guy? Oh, I'm going to mimic this guy. I'm and now I'm going to do. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. You know, it's like if you see a Van Gogh, are you going to cut off your ear? I mean, it, that's what they're thinking. Yeah. You know, that, that's what it leads to. It's crazy. And look, this guy's an interesting, right, without endorsing all of his choices over his whole life, right, he served in the Confederacy and he was still, you know, loyal to the lost cause afterward. He eventually moved to Italy, fell in love with Rome, and he died in Rome during World War One. Like, oh, it's wow. interesting life, right? That's a, imagine a, a life that spans from the Civil War to World War One. Like, this is an. This was the you know, most notable Jewish American sculptor of the time. I think you can learn about those details without right without becoming evil from from like absorb. Yeah. It's like it's crazy. What are they trying to protect against? It's insane. I, you know, yeah. I just I wish that there was. We would go back to that time when universities, colleges were all about yeah. all the ideas, but that seems to have gone by well, the And it's wayside. changed because of this, as I, as I noted, uh, noted, again, it's not really the college as a whole was like, oh, yeah, we can't do this. It's just the diversity consultant gets involved and says, oh, it might be problematic to, you know, what about our HR concerns? What about that kind of stuff? And when that person has, has the power to, to decide things like that, it's never going to turn out well. So William Carlos Williams author of that famous Red Wheelbarrow poem that oh, everybody like loves that. because you can memorize it. Yeah. Uh, a fascist. Like yep. Just a straight-up fascist. Yeah. And also, as uh, society evolves progressively and each previous generation you know, becomes written off as regressive, that would mean that basically everything from that time period would be off-limits. Right. Will be off limits soon enough that if our videos are still on YouTube, <laughs> they will, they'll be the, the, the next generation will say you can't listen to those uh, those horrible fascists, Ryan Grimm, Kim Iverson and Robbie Suave. And they'll be right. Well, they'll be right. what they're going to do is they're going to check our DNA and see if we're actually related to any of them. And then Ooh. we're going to be canceled. Canceled yep. for so many different reasons. Oh, well. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to finding out what's on your guys radars coming up next.
What's on your radar, Ryan? Well, the video game that my kids have all gotten obsessed with is called Roblox, and it's surging in popularity around the world. At the end of this past year, it had nearly 50 million active users on its platform every single day. Now, because it's mostly kids, their chat function has impressively tight controls. It doesn't just block out profanity, but also blocks out numbers and other words that might be used by old men trying to creep on little kids. Now, when young children are involved, that's the kind of big tech censorship I'm very much in support of. Now, over at The Intercept, my colleague Ken Klippenstein is reporting that Amazon is taking a page out of the Roblox, Roblox playbook and was working on a plan to roll out a chat app that would block workers there from sharing naughty words. Now, their idea of blocking naughty words starts out the same. There will be no profanity allowed. But from there, it starts to get a little weird. See if you can spot the pattern in the forbidden words. I hate, union, fire, terminated, compensation, pay raise, bullying, harassment, I don't care, rude, this is concerning, stupid, this is dumb, prison, threat, petition, grievance, injustice, diversity, ethics, fairness, accessibility, vaccine, senior ops, living wage, representation, unfair, favoritism, rate, TOT, unite and unity, plantation, slave, slave labor, master, concerned, freedom, robots, trash, committee, and of course, everybody's favorite, last but not least, restrooms. So those are the words Amazon won't allow its workers to say to each other over their chat if they actually roll this out. And the way workers are spread out in warehouses, a chat like that would often be the only way they can communicate. Now, the word restrooms, of course, is clearly meant to stop people from complaining about how trash the bathrooms are or how far they are from where they are or how so many workers have to pee in bottles or corners to stay on task. TOT in that last list is time off task. And Amazon has electronic ways of monitoring whether you're on or off task. They clearly think that the only reason workers would mention Amazon's most important measurement, TOT, is to complain about it. Now, this news comes as Amazon is reeling from the first successful union drive in the company's history after workers at a Staten Island warehouse voted overwhelmingly to collectively bargain. A nearby warehouse is also voting in a few weeks, and this news is likely worth a decent number of votes in that upcoming election, too. Now, disclosures show that Amazon has spent millions on what's called, quote, union avoidance by the management class. But here's some free advice for them. If you want to avoid a union, treat your workers with respect and pay them a decent wage. Then you don't have to worry about censoring naughty words like injustice, pay raise, plantation, or union. Amazon, for its part, told The Intercept there are no plans to ban many of the words on the list, quote, if it does launch at some point down the road, said an Amazon spokesperson, there are no plans for many of the words you're calling out to be screened. The only kinds of words that may be screened are ones that are offensive or harassing, which is intended to protect our team, unquote. And so, Robbie, you've, uh, and, and Kim as well, you've worked on stories like this uh, before. It's always fun when you get that corporate statement that is kind of future-looking, there, there, there are no plans to roll this list out. 
It's like, hmm, that's not what the documents said, but we'll take your word for it at this point. And it's a way that you can, they, they can sort of deny a story by saying that, well, now we're no longer planning <laughs> on doing that. Right, right. Yeah. That's, they you should know, not this, do that. That sounds like a, <laughs> that sounds like a bad they, idea. They, they made the right decision. <laughs> right, right. Not only that, but how would it even work? I mean, could you imagine chatting and you say, oh, well, uh, this really, what were some of the words like, this sucks or this uh, right. sucks? I don't but, care. You know? It's unfair. Yeah, I don't ethics. care. And then ethics. what would happen? Like, would, would you get this notification that says, sorry, your chat couldn't be delivered? Well, or, you know, if it's like the Roblox technology, it, I, uh, it turns it into the little uh, pound signs. And so, oh. so you, if you would press enter, yeah, it would say, you know, anybody, you know, what's, what's up with the restrooms? And it, would, and it would just say, what's up with the, and then a whole bunch of, whole bunch of pound signs. Oh, interesting. Um, so it, like, should, makes it should, look should, like it's a... I, I'm angry. I think we should form a pound, 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 pound. Ah, uh, okay. So, so it, it yeah, looks guess, like it's bleeped out kind right. of thing. But what, what, then what you could just yeah. get around that. Then, then you create the employees will create Words, like their yeah. own little language. Like we need to create an elephant. Uh, right. The elephant <laughs> meeting yeah. is tonight, yes. right? <laughs> the, the problem there. Yeah. Well, for one, um, the, uh, Amazon will be tracking everybody's words, so they won't just be banning it. That will it will they will also see that somebody tried to type union, and so then when the consultants come in, they can they can pull that person aside and say, hey, you know, here's why you shouldn't join this join this union. Right. Uh, but the other thing, and this goes to partly why the Staten Island one was able to be successful, in order to create a code like, hey, we should form an elephant, you, would, you have to know your colleagues, your coworkers first. Like you have to be with them in person and, and in order to create that. And in a lot of warehouses, uh, there's so much turnover and they're so massive that that a lot of people just don't know each other. So Chris Smalls was hired to help set up the Staten Island warehouse like five years ago. And so he kind of hired a ton of people. He trained a lot of people. And because he worked there up until fairly recently, he knows you know, dozens of people who are still in there. And the, and the people that he knows you know, know other people. So there's a, more of a tight community. But with some of these other warehouses, now that they're, they've been open for a while, nobody knows anybody. And they're just mm -hmm. churning through the community. So this is their risk. If they create community through this app, then that community might decide they like each other yeah. and want to team up. I think Amazon will find workers are, are more productive when they're happier and That's which yeah. they not say is the goal of this. feeling like yeah. they're, but not feeling <laughs> like they're surveilled, their right. words tracked, their very language denied to them, right? Like, let's not, yeah. let's not go crazy dystopia here. Not, not only that, but people are going to find the workarounds like like we were just discussing. I mean, it's human nature. I mean, look, teenagers can get around every single roadblock that their parents put in their mm -hmm. way. Uh, you know, adults can certainly figure out a way to, to get around all of this. Censorship just doesn't work as much as people want to think that it does. It just simply doesn't. So Amazon going to this next level of censorship to try. And I get it. You know, they're sitting there saying, well, it's our chat function. It's, it's you know, workplace chat. Right. So we Which don't want true. work, you know. Right. Uh, sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of workplaces will put controls on the computers like so that you can't go on Twitter or Facebook while you're sitting at your desk in your cubicle. But, so, I mean, I understand you want certain conversation and certain type of, you know, uh, yeah, certain type of t conversation to be happening at the workplace. Uh, but this just doesn't work. I mean, it just doesn't. And it, all it does is upset people. Yeah, it and makes it even worse. And it's so instructive about 
how they how they perceive their workers' perceptions about Amazon. Like if you're going to ban the words ethics and fairness and injustice, you're assuming as Amazon that the only reason that these workers would be using these words would be to describe you. Yeah. Well, but there are some workplaces, right, that want to stop. Maybe I, I'm not saying this is the situation here that you want their employees. And it is probably not. We're not talking about Amazon workers, but their employees are overly distracted or at each other's throats talking about mm -hmm. political subjects. And they've tried to introduce policies Trump, like, hey, Trump guys, and, Trump and Brandon are not banned. What? Well, you can still say Brandon. Well, <laughs> and I, I bet they would have liked to ban schedule. But, that, but too many people have to actually mm -hmm. talk about schedule. Because that's the thing for a lot of Amazon workers that is the most frustrating. That what, the you know, their, their unpredictable schedule that might be late, late at night. And, mm. Yeah. Anyway. Mm. Maybe it'll all be done by robots at some point. Right. You can just program well, the robots yeah. not to talk yeah. about these things. Yeah, that's right. They think, what's <laughs> ethics? What, what's justice? <laughs> don't, don't know about these things. That's also a terrifying thought. <laughs> Netflix does not compute. Does not compute. <laughs> Our rising panel Great. joins us next. Stick around. Stay tuned. <laughs> Tesla CEO Elon Musk bought a 9.2% stake in Twitter, making Musk the company's largest shareholder. According to Forbes, Musk's stake in the platform is almost four times the size of founder Jack Dorsey's share. Now, the purchase comes less than two weeks after Musk criticized Twitter over its rules and polled users on the platform on whether or not they believe Twitter adheres to free speech. Twitter's stocks have since surged more than 27%, and that's since Musk's buy-in. Musk teased the prospect of an edit button yesterday after the news broke and after people were relentlessly <laughs> tweeting at him demanding one. And he polled users on the issue. Twitter's CEO says the poll is important and urged people to vote carefully. Our colleague, The Hill's Julia Manchester and Senior Director of Policy at the Conservative Partnership Institute, Rachel Bovard, join us now to discuss. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Good morning. So, Rachel, I'll start with you. Um, is this the best news or the best news ever? <laughs> I'm kidding, but it's so <laughs> exciting. It's so interesting. What Anything yes. could happen now. It is interesting. And as of this morning, Elon Musk is on the board of Twitter. So he is not just uh, an activist shareholder now. He is a member of the board. So things are about to get even more interesting, I think, for Twitter uh, and what Elon Musk brings to the table, which I think is anyone's guess at this point. Um, mm -hmm. If you've watched Elon Musk, you know how mercurial he tends to be. Uh, and so I'm not sure anyone knows exactly what he has planned uh, or what he's planning for Twitter or his next venture of which this could be a part. Um, so I think it will be pretty interesting to watch this play out because now that he's on the board, he's too big a fish, I think, mm -hmm. to just sit there and take his lumps. Well, and Rachel, is this a, a solution to the big tech problem that you and I can actually agree on? That, you know, we, we've <laughs> disagreed on you know, what regulation or legislation or breaking them up or antitrust we would support to deal with what I do think and agree with you on our real threats to free speech on the platform. OK, what about a, a private citizen buys up the company who wants to you know, do what he can to push it in a more free speech friendly direction? Can't hurt, right? It can't. And I think this possibly could solve a lot of problems with Twitter, depending on what Elon Musk demands and receives. 
Um, you know, of course, he's going to have to, I think, work with the other board members. Uh, allegedly, he and Jack Dorsey, who's also on the board, are friendly and both want to push more in a free speech direction, although I'm not sure how seriously to take that from Jack Dorsey. But he's got, you know, hedge fund investors. He's got a former Google exec on the board who I th think is probably terrible on the issue of free speech. So we'll see. But I think on the broader issue, I, I have seen some takes this morning that are like, oh, the market is working. Well, yes, if we can all just become the richest man in the world and buy a, <laughs> buy the largest share of Twitter, maybe we can solve our problems. But I agree with you. Like this could end up being a very good thing for the state of free speech on Twitter, which, as you know, you and I have discussed, controls sort of the narrative arc of the news in this country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly among the chattering class, the professional class, the political class. Yeah, what do you make of this, Julia? It's a fun story, but could have, could have real importance for actually how a lot of us do our jobs, right? I'm sure you, like me, yeah. get a lot of your, uh, or you at least see what other journalists are working on based on Twitter. That's largely my Situation. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm very interested to see what the future prospects of an edit button are. I don't really yeah. know what that will look like, how that will be played out, but I've seen lots of reaction about that in particular. But it's been interesting to watch the lawmaker reaction to this. I was just scrolling through Twitter a few moments ago and Lauren Boebert, a conservative congresswoman from Colorado, just responded and she essentially said, you know, this is just the beginning. 2020, 22 is the year we take our country back, and she's referring to that uh, Musk's free speech mentality, that sort of a thing. So I think you're going to see this cheered um, by the populist classes of the left and the right. Um, but at the same time, I've seen some criticism to this move saying, look, this is just another rich guy in big tech getting involved in another company in big tech, and this is just kind of uh, sh showing mm. how mi big tech, there's an incestuous nature mm. to it. So, you know, uh, we'll have to see where this goes. I'm fascinated because Elon Musk is really a fascinating character. He doesn't really seem, in my mind at least, I don't really put him with the other characters in big tech. He's sort of his own category. He is definitely his own category. Um, so he could definitely shake things right. up. And I think conservatives are looking forward to this because of the criticism of free speech, particularly to, um, in policies towards conservatives on big tech. So we'll see. Well, Fox News' host Tucker Carlson reacted to Musk's stake in the company. Let's watch that. So what happens next? Let's be very clear. This is not a business transaction. It's much bigger than that. Elon Musk is a massive threat to the way things are. So by definition, it will not be long before they are calling him a racist. You can mark your calendar. Tonight, there are Democratic operatives studying everything Elon Musk has ever said in public. They're preparing one of the nastiest campaigns of character assassination in memory. They have no choice but to do this. Restoring free speech to Twitter is the greatest possible threat to the people in charge. They have to control the information. If they don't, they fall. The popular market watch account Unusual Whales asked this question. Should Elon Musk reinstate Trump's Twitter account? Well, I'll turn it over to you, Rachel. What do you think? I mean, I think the answer is absolutely yes right <laughs> like if this is elon musk's commitment to free speech the first yeah. thing you should do is sort of begin to protect political speech on the platform i mean among all the other speech you know that's been suppressed i think on the platform i think the first thing he could do to win a lot of goodwill i think across the board at least from conservatives would be to yeah. stop 
you know, the censorship of political speech, but also reinstate everybody who was banned uh, for talking about COVID-19 information that we now know is true. Yes. Uh, I yeah. think those would be like baseline things he could do immediately. I think that would trend that would actually show some difference in Twitter and show that he's committed to the free speech ideal. Yeah, I agree. But I was thinking what specifically I would want Twitter to do differently the other day because of this. And I was realizing I we're now at a point where I'm actually more frustrated with Facebook's um, uh, content moderation than I am with Twitter's, which I think I was in the opposite place like a year ago. But it, it now it, <laughs> the, the fact checking system on Facebook is just is tyrannical and insane. And, and Twitter doesn't have a comparative fact checking where they actually like blur the piece of content and say, are you sure you want to proceed with this? So at, at the very least, he should resist implementing anything like that because it's terrible. Yeah, well, remember, you know, Twitter used to call itself the free speech wing of the free speech party. That was not that long ago. It was back in 2011. And still to this day, Twitter remains the only major social media platform where you can post pornography and you, well, adult consenting pornography, and you can also post graphic violence. So they are starting from a little bit more of a free speech place than I think the other platforms are. And so I'm curious to see where Elon Musk take this. I would like to see more user control personally um, of the algorithm, you know, having options for what users want to see and when. Yeah. What do you think, Julia? Is everybody going to be trying to cancel Elon now that he's <laughs> taking this role on Twitter? Yeah, I think that he's definitely going to have his critics. He's a controversial character, like mm-hmm. we said before. And I think, you know, he's gotten into Twitter fights with liberals like uh, Senator Bernie Sanders. So I think we can definitely expect some backlash there. Um, you know, when we'll, we'll, have to see, we'll have to see what his first moves are. I think then we'll, we'll see where it goes. Oh, well, and I want to get your reaction to this. So Pereg Agrawal, who's the new CEO of Twitter, replaced Jack Dorsey, yeah, so he said on Twitter, I'm excited to share that we're appointing Elon Musk to our board, as Rachel uh, mentioned. Through conversations with Elon in recent weeks, it became clear to us that he would bring great value to our board. He's both a passionate believer and intense critic of the service, which is exactly what we need on Twitter and in the boardroom to make us stronger in the long term. Welcome, Elon. And Elon responded, looking forward to working uh, with you to make significant improvements to Twitter in the coming months. So yeah, look at yeah. that, all playing out in public. All playing out in public. Look, I think, you know, we're, we're going to see some changes into how Twitter obviously operates with mm-hmm. Elon Musk. And I think, um, you know, you mentioned Facebook and how Facebook deals with misinformation, disinformation, and, you know, picking out what's posted right. on the Badly. platform. Badly, that's and how such. they deal with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, you know, I'm interested to see how Twitter goes about this because Twitter has not been shielded by um, accusations of bias and such. And I think this is where Elon Musk is coming from. Um, You know, but I'm especially interested to see where this goes in the age of COVID-19. You know, what happens, you know, know, how how do they uh, sift through all of that information? And really, how does this impact other, um, you know, misinformation or disinformation campaigns such is from governments like the Kremlin. We'll see. Interesting. Rachel, we got to go. But I always think it's interesting that Elon is viewed not as like a hard right figure, obviously, but like he's well liked enough, I think, among the right or like identified as sort of not hostile to the right, even even though his main thing is like he's a a green energy guy in some sense. (laughs) But because he is not like absolutely, completely having just over-the-top contempt toward the right, he's in good standing with him. Like, that, like that's literally all it takes. 
No, it, it, the head pad is real and we take it every time. And I think that <laughs> that is what's happening here with Elon Musk. So, look, I think we're all feeling fairly hopeful about what he can do. You know, although, you know, I'm not going to put all my eggs in the Elon Musk basket. So we'll see. <laughs> all right. Well, Julia, Rachel, thank you both so much for joining me. Thanks. Thanks. And stick around for more Rising in just a minute. Yesterday, the Senate voted 53 to 47 to advance Katanji Brown-Jackson's Supreme Court nomination. She is likely to be confirmed this week after three GOP senators broke with their party in support of her nomination. That's Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski, Senator Susan Collins of Maine, uh, who had publicly backed the judge last month, in addition to Senator Mitt Romney, who also backed the SCOTUS nominee, saying, quote, while I do not expect to agree with every decision she may make on the court, I believe that she more than meets the standard of excellence and integrity, adding a congratulations on her expected confirmation. Julia Manchester and Rachel Bovard are back with us to weigh in. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Morning. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So, Julia, we'll start with you. So this is, uh, you know, this is a win, obviously, for the, the Biden administration, though this, you know, this was not a nomination that Republicans would have had enough votes to block anyway, assuming there's no breaking of, of the ranks. Um, you know, they, it got the, the questioning got some attention because of the, like, kind of relentless focus on the child mm-hmm. sexual pornography, which was, I think, uncomfortable for everyone right, to listen right. to. At that length, but you know, what is your takeaway from the process and the outcome? Yeah, look, now the Biden administration and Judge Jackson can say that they got a bipartisan uh, vote yeah. because they got these three senators. Now, the majority of Republicans who came out against this will say things like they, you know, her record on um, ruling on those child pornography cases, her stances on Supreme Court expansion, on whether the Constitution is a living document and such. They will say, those issues. However, it's remarkable, really, not just in this uh, Supreme Court uh, um, nomination, but in past recent nominations to see how incredibly partisan Mm -hmm. this process has become. You know, it used to be a vote over who was qualified. And you have seen a number of senators come out and say, yes, we absolutely think uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson is qualified, but it comes down to whether they agree or disagree with her. Um, One of the uh, senators that will vote in favor, Lisa Murkowski, I am very interested in that decision. She is facing a pretty tough primary challenge up in Arizona, mm-hmm. Arizona, excuse me, Alaska. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that uh, the conservative base is obviously not going to potentially be happy with Murkowski's decision. So expect, I'm expecting to um, watch out for those political ramifications. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, Romney's support comes less than a year after his opposition to Judge Jackson's nomination to a lower federal court. So back in June, Romney had voted nay to Brown's nomination to be the circuit judge for D.C. And, and Rachel, I know you've you've pointed that out on Twitter, you're calling that unusual for for a senator to change their mind so rapidly uh, on an issue. You know, what what do you what do you think he changed his mind about? I, I can guess what you're going to say. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, this may have happened before, but I've never seen it in the 15 years I've been watching senators vote on these kind of confirmations. I've never seen a senator go the other way. Usually what happens is they'll vote 
you know, to confirm at a lower court level. And then they'll say, well, you know, you're fine for a district court, but I'm not going to put you on the circuit court. Here we have the opposite. You know, he said, no, you're not qualified to be on the circuit court. And then less than a year later, suddenly he's saying, but yes, you're qualified to be on the highest court in the country and set policy for the entire nation on, you know, critical issues of, of you know, culture and law. So I am, I am actually curious what in the last 10 months since that vote took place happened to change uh, Mitt Romney's mind on Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Well, and I don't think he's been asked, and I would love to know the answer. Well, let, let's be real. I think it's that he wants the accolades for having voted to confirm the first black woman to the Supreme Court or doesn't want to have been remembered from for voting against that now that his like base of support is not Republicans, but Democrats or independent minded people or people who like bipartisanship. He wants to be favorably remembered by them. That's that's what I think his thinking is. I, you know, I think you're probably right. But if that's the case, then he should just say that. Right. And yeah. stop bandying about this. Well, oh, she's she's impeccably qualified. Well, she wasn't impeccably, impeccably qualified 10 months ago. So, you know, you should just say this out loud. But it's very interesting to watch Mitt Romney in this sequence of events, because in the last several months, you know, he has voted with Democrats to continue to mask toddlers. He skipped the vote that Republicans would have won to defund vaccine mandates at the federal level. He refuses to endorse his uh, coast senior state senator, Mike Lee, uh, who's up for reelection. And now he's supporting Judge Jackson. I don't know what's going on with Mitt Romney, uh, but I think the right is asking a lot of questions. Because when you look at Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, you know, their votes are sort of, you know, not unexpected in a sense, if you've watched them, this is sort of who they are. Uh, and depending on where you sit on the spectrum, it makes them, you know, predictable moderates or complete rhinos, depending on <laughs> where you are. But Mitt Romney has evolved, uh, clearly. And I think that, that the right should be asking more questions about why. Right. Um, I wanted to read. Uh, so you brought up Julia Lisa Murkowski. So she said, you know, that her her vote for uh for the nominee rests on my rejection of the corrosive politicization of the review process for Supreme Court nominees, which on both sides of the aisle is growing worse and more detached from reality by the year. So I, I think that's a you know, clear indication of what you were talking about, just mm -hmm. how this process has gotten so kind of disgusting to witness. Yeah, yeah, on both sides. Yeah, absolutely really. on both sides. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and you know, she's trying to make a statement that I'm, I'm voting for this person not just because I, I think she's qualified enough, but because, like, I'm indicting this system. Right, right. It's a statement. It's yeah. definitely a statement. Um, and like I said, I'm curious to see, you know, that statement may go over well here in Washington, D.C., and maybe with other moderates, maybe uh, liberals, Democrats. But I'm curious to see how that statement goes over with Alaska's conservatives. But Murkowski was able, and you know more about this, I'm sure your memory is better than mine, she was able to win election last time, right, by she was. going outside the the the, the, she was defeated in yeah. the primary and then mm -hmm. ran a write-in campaign. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And she is seen, I think she's a staple in Alaska politics. Alaska is a very unique state. Um, and, you, you know, look, she's uh, she's known for being a moderate, like was said before. I mean, everyone knows who they're voting for. She's a staple. So, I'm yeah, I'm curious to see what her primary challenger, what the, you know, people and organizations supporting her primary challenger, how they spin this. Because I'm assuming this will be spun against her in some way. But I'm also curious to see, you know, Alaska conservatives is, you know, Katanji Brown Jackson right now, you know, her confirmation. Is that on the top of their uh, voter priority right. list when we have so much going right. on right now? Right.
Rachel, do you think they, the senators, consider, uh, I, I'm sure they do to some extent, but I wonder how transparent it is in their thinking. They might just say, okay, in this case, we can't stop this nomination. The Republican senators, people like Collins and Murkowski, there's nothing we can do to stop this, presuming all the, the Democrats vote in unison. So why don't we, we might as well look, you know, like we're those, these moderates whose votes are up for grabs because that is like our branding. If push came to shove, like with the Kavanaugh hearing, right, if Susan Collins stood up and gave this tremendous speech to help get that nomination through because she was needed for that. There's nothing they can actually do really to stop this nomination. So, you know, why not look like they're, oh, sometimes we vote with Democrats, that kind of thing. Well, there's nothing really Democrats could do to stop the Kavanaugh nomination, but that didn't stop them from like completely dragging that right. into the gutter, you know, and to the point that's being made about where judicial confirmations stand now, you know, the unraveling of the judicial confirmation process has been ongoing for the last, you know, 20, 25 years, uh, you know, really since Miguel Estrada, you could say, you know, Robert Bork, um, but it's been, you know, ongoing. You know, the first black woman to the Supreme Court could have been Janice Rogers Brown, but she was filibustered by Democrats. So this has just been an ongoing, I think, state of affairs. But I do think the Kavanaugh confirmation pushed it to a new level among mm -hmm. Republicans. And I think the real proxy for that was Lindsey Graham, um, you know, a, a senator who almost consistently voted for every Supreme Court nominee, no matter who it was. I think very famously voted for Sotomayor, for Justice Kagan, on the grounds that, you know, president should have the person they think is qualified. And even he at this point is saying that process is broken. So this is just where we are. And, you know, I've said a, a number of times, part of the problem is that Congress outsources all of our major uh, cultural and legal questions to the Supreme Court, where Congress could solve these problems on their own. They don't. They don't want the accountability of doing so. They make the Supreme Court do it. And that's why right. these fights become so bitter. Uh, so, if Congress were to actually do its job, you might not see such antipathy around these confirmations. But until they do, it's going to continue to be like this. The Supreme Court is our actual uh, legislature, <laughs> and our legislature right. is just cable news. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Rachel, Julia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. New reporting in New York Magazine continues to trace the questionable allocation of funds donated to the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, finds that $6 million in money fundraised by the group for fighting racial inequity has gone towards a swanky 6,500-square-foot Southern California home purchased in cash in October 2020. The home features more than half a dozen bedrooms, bathrooms, a pool, a soundstage, parking for more than 20 cars, according to reporting from Sean Kevin Campbell. In a statement to the New York Magazine, a BLM Global Network Foundation spokesperson called the property by its nickname, Campus, and wrote that the property was not, does not serve as anyone's personal residence and was purchased, quote, with the intention for it to serve as housing and studio space for recipients of the Black Joy Creators Fellowship. BLM Global Network Fund was awarded tax-exempt status from the IRS in December 2020, two months after the house's purchase. Joining us now to expand on his reporting is investigative journalist Sean Campbell. Welcome to Rising. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. And so you've, you've really gone behind the scenes with this reporting here. And I'm, without getting into who, who your sources are or anything like that that might expose anything, are there people inside the organization and close to the inner circle that are frustrated by some of this spending? And, and is that why we're learning about it? Because, you know, having done a lot of reporting, these real estate transactions are basically impossible to uncover unless 
you get unless somebody flags them for you because you you know you can create LLCs with names that have nothing to do with anything, and mm -hmm. there are billions of properties in the world, and it's a real needle in a haystack situation. Yeah, so I will say in this particular case too, uh, the L the property was purchased by an individual who you could trace back to the organization, okay. uh, Dane Paschal, uh, who um, through those records I could see that it was purchased in cash, and this was purchased with cash from BLM. These are BLM funds. It was uh, roughly $5.9 million for the property. Uh, but to your first question, yes, uh, people that I've been speaking with have been growing, have been getting more and more frustrated with the organization. And a lot of it has to do too with that these are issues that have been simmering within the organization for years. People have been raising questions about where money is going, how money is being spent across all sectors of the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation. And I also want to be clear here that when we're talking about Black Lives Matter, even if we might use it as shorthand, for this conversation, we're talking about the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation. It's problematic that the movement has been named after this or has been named in conjunction with uh, uh, this group of people and this organization. But this is just one organization that has really put itself into the limelight as being the face of the movement. And that has created a lot of problems, created a lot of funding problems that have diverted money from local organizers and other organizations. And this is one of you know, how some of the funds are purchased. When I did my first look into it, there were a lot of murky details with how money was being spent, where the money was going. And this is a clear indication of when the money is given, how it might be getting spent. We're talking a few months after the death of George Floyd. We're not seeing money, this, this amount of money going to political action, to policy making, to local organizers. We're seeing this money go into the purchase of a house. And this is two weeks after they leave their financial uh, or their fiscal sponsor. So within this short window of time, we're seeing a huge purchase. And these aren't things that is, this isn't like these issues weren't being raised before that local uh, activists, local organizers needed money. They were desperate for money. These conversations stretch back years. So yes, people do get frustrated with this. People who also come in, they might be frustrated or just really concerned when they're working on certain things and only have pieces of information. All of these add up. And over time, if you talk to enough people, information starts to come up. It, it looks to me, and, and again, congratulations on your, your story. I think the reporting's terrific. It, it looks to me like a question of priorities, that the, the founders want to spend money on almost like a hype house or like an like a in, influencing kind of social media, that kind of sort of lifestyle or approach to activism, which, mm -hmm. okay, that's an approach. I think a lot of people would have reasonable criticisms of whether that you know translates to real change or is, is a good use of money versus more traditional organizing and yeah you know, they seem based on uh, your story to be kind of like defiantly standing by that strategy which obviously leads to some degree of personal enrichment um, is, is that the kind of conflict at the root of this i think so uh, and I also do want to be clear that the influencer house, we learned of that after we had approached them with questions. We knew that that was something that they had been uh, concocting 
in response to uh, me asking, hey, so I found this house and it's connected to Dane and Dane's connected to uh, Ms. Colors and uh, the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation. So uh, that's in a way a little bit retrospective uh, or um, you know, post uh, my asking the questions about these things. And then there's also um, that the activist videos, we'll say, I'll just put a big quotes around that. These activist videos aren't even just the, the popular one that we quoted in the article where, or popular now, uh, of them sipping champagne and eating amongst a lavish, a lavish spread. Uh, this also includes on Patrice Colors' private YouTube channel, which those videos have now been taken down, but her reacting to uh, TikTok videos of Karens and uh, baking a peach cobbler with her aunt. Now, I think even in the broadest sense, that really stretches the imagination for these being activist style influencers. You can say that Patrice Coolers is an activist and she's producing these videos, but some of these videos really do not touch on activism at all, in my opinion. Right, what, what was damning about your reporting was the fact that you were able to get their internal correspondence about how to respond to somebody. And that's how you know that an organization is kind of in crisis, when the reporter is able to get their hands on the deliberations about how we handle this, these questions. And as you point out in the piece, there, there was a real tension between two different responses that they wanted to give. On the one hand, they wanted to say that this was a safe house for people who were facing legitimate security threats, which, okay, that could be a plausible explanation. And then on the other hand, they wanted to say that this is a hype house that they're going to use to produce music videos, other videos, uh, you know, podcasts, and otherwise create art to further the movement. And as, as they observed themselves in their deliberations, those two things are intention. You know, you can't, mm. you can't do them together. And so, and then the final damning piece was they're saying, well, we actually need to make sure that this is legal before we say this. And this is what, 17 months after the property had been purchased. So what's your sense of what the property was genuinely being used for? So I can't speak to anything outside what's in my reporting. But I do know that it had been used, again, by Patrice Colors to make over a dozen videos, some related to activism, some seemingly not as much related to activism, some tangentially related to activism. And I do know that she stayed in the residence for a number of days. Uh, and also, Malina um, Abdullah had stayed in the residence for a number of days. Uh, and these stays could have stemmed from legitimate security concerns uh, where there were threats in their life or they received uh, threatening notifications from people. Uh, but I will say that six million dollars is a lot to pay for a safe house. Uh, you don't even necessarily need a safe house. You only need it for four days. Staying in a hotel, a motel even, uh, would be even if you were to stay in a Malibu resort, which has also been connected to the organization, uh, that would be maybe um, two, three thousand dollars for a few days in one of the best rooms in uh, a Malibu resort. So that is a reason. Um, but as you were saying before, if you're having also an influencer house, you're saying it's an influencer house, and you also want to keep this as a private safe house, there's an obvious tension there because how are you going to get people in and out of this residence 
that are their whole job is to broadcast what's going on in the residence, what they're creating to the largest possible audience. That's the antithesis of a safe house. Uh, and with that being said, you know, we didn't disclose too much information about the house. We know it exists. They know it exists. We have the address. We can say all of that, but we also don't feel that it's necessary to release too much of that information because people have received death threats. There are legitimate security concerns involving people and any people who may or may not be in and around the residence, which we would not want to see. No, absolutely. But, and, uh, and again, this, this influencer house thing was not something that I had seen or heard from any of the people I talked to, any of the documents I'd seen before I contacted them. And the memo that I received kind of showed as much. It was one of a number of responses to how they were going to deal with my questions. They, they even a point in the memo is says initial response before we ever respond to them at all. Let's just break the story somewhere else. To, to <laughs> that old move. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Sean Campbell. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate you having me on. We'll have more rising after this. Republicans are zeroing in on the border as a midterm attack issue on Democrats, seeing a political opportunity in the Biden administration's decision to revoke a key restriction known as Title 42. That's according to The Hill's Emily Brooks and Julia Manchester. Julia joins me now to help break down how the issue will play out in November. Julia, thanks for being here in thank, studio. Excited. Thank you for having me. Yes, good to be back. Yeah, wonderful. So let's talk about this. You know, I don't think... Uh, for a while, at least, I think immigration has been on the back burner a little bit with the economy, obviously Ukraine, kind of the end of COVID. But, it, you know, it's always an issue Republicans want to talk about uh, because I think they've correctly figured out it is something mm -hmm. that helps them a lot, particularly with the base. Uh, so what's going on now with Title 42, which I, you know, for our, our viewers, is a, a law that is essentially designed uh, to prevent immigration from countries where there is some disease risk, although it's a little funny because COVID is here just as much as it is in any South American country or Latin American country. Uh, so, so talk about, uh, you know, what's going on now. Yeah, so essentially Title 42, which is a Trump era policy that was put in place during the pandemic, um, is set to be repealed by the Biden administration next month in May. So, you know, we're seeing Republicans wanting to keep this in place and, or um, saying that if we're going to repeal this, there should be a plan because it allows, um, you know, immigrants to, it allows Border Patrol to essentially stop the flow and uh, detain immigrants for a while. Um, so with this being repealed, um, you're seeing Republicans really going on the offensive, saying, that, you know, we already have a crisis at the border. We're already seeing a flow of right. immigrants coming over from Mexico and Central America. There needs to be some plan in place. But what's interesting about this, Robbie, is it's not just Republicans that are saying this. It's moderate Democrats as well moderate Democrats that are particularly from states where uh, they're facing relatively mm -hmm. tough re-election bids. Mark Kelly in Arizona, Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire. If we want to go down the ballot, Henry Cuellar in Texas's 28th district, Vicente Gonzalez in Texas's 34th district. These are all Democrats who essentially want there to be some sort of plan in place if it's going to be repealed or keep the policy in place. It's a very tough re-election issue for Democrats right now. We've 
seen that before this decision was made by the Biden administration, Republicans were very much zeroing in on this. Well, now this gives them even more of a messaging do, point. Do Democrats like the ones you mentioned feel like the national party, the Biden administration is just like screwing them at every turn, just <laughs> putting them in the position where you know they have to be playing defense on all these issues, uh, for, you know, from the culture war to to immigration mm -hmm. to the economy. Uh, I imagine it's got to be frustrating because you know we're looking at probably a midterm where I I think even the most optimistic. Uh, expectation is Democrats sort of getting wiped out. Right. Like if anyone is left standing, it will count as a victory. I mean, not not literally. Obviously, some Democrats <laughs> yeah, will still be in yeah. office, but do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So I think right now the Biden administration and a lot of these moderate Democrats are in a difficult position. They're walking a very fine line, and I know that's a bit of a cliche, but it is true with situations like this. You know, the president is under pressure from the progressive flank of his party, who he needs to turn out, and obviously under pressure for the moderate flank of the, his party, who he also needs. Um, you know, for these uh, moderate Democrats who are speaking out against this, though, it does put them in a very difficult position, especially for someone like Mark Kelly, Henry Cuellar, Vicente Gonzalez, when your state or district is quite literally on the border, it makes it that more tough. And uh, so, you know, when even though these Democrats are moderate and speaking out against this, um, it makes it that much easier for their Republican opponents to say, well, look, the leader of your party is, you know, pro-open borders. It's so right. easy to tie them to that right. from a messaging standpoint. So it's a difficult position they're in. Are, are Republicans starting to talk at all about what, you know, what they will do with respect to our immigration policy or our border policy when they have control of the government again? Or is it just like, nope, just let's stay focused on what the Democrats are doing and why that's wrong? Well, I think, that, you know, in terms of a campaign messaging standpoint, yes, it's focusing on Democrats. But we have heard uh, some, you know, points about what they would do if elected. I think he would see a return of a lot of Trump era policies like Title 42, for example. Um, they talk about being tighter on the situation at the border, more restrictive in terms of who comes over the border. So we haven't gotten too much in detail yet. I think it you know, varies from state to state, um, district to district, but it definitely does seem they will obviously be more strict. Mm -hmm. Well, and I remember when when we were talking about the, you know, the whole kids in cages mm. uh, moment, and then it, you know, it turned out some of those images were actually from the Obama administration, yeah. and also that you know the Biden administration wasn't making a, a radical right. break with that policy. Um, is that is that issue still being talked about or? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to Biden being sort of stuck in the middle of the progressive and moderate flanks of yeah. his party. You have the progressives who are actually criticizing the Biden administration, who criticized the Obama administration for their policies on, you know, detainees and, you know, those so -called kids in cages and those images. So I think that's, you know, where how the Biden administration is in a very difficult position as to how to deal with this, because I think policy wise or Joe Biden, you know, would be considered a moderate. However, in terms of how he's been policymaking and such, it seems like he's trying to cater to the progressive wing of his party sometimes. Right. Well, and I think he is. I, I think Joe Biden is truly a man of moderate sensibilities, yes, yes. Uh, tendencies, mm -hmm. inclinations. But of course, 
it's not clear, right, how much he is actually in control of the party. You know, he's the he's the figurehead. He's mm-hmm. the face of the party. But, you know, who makes the decisions? Who briefs him on issues? Who tells him, well, we're going to focus yeah. on this? I think it tends toward younger, more progressive, you know, the woke, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call them, uh, because that is, that's what they're passionate about. That's what, you know, they hear from on social media. That's how they fire up the activists. But it, it's... It's, I think it's obviously not what interests the, the, the kind of voters that form the most important part of the of the Biden coalition. Right. I mean, Joe Biden is in a very different Democratic Party than yeah. when he was a senator or even when he was a vice president. Yeah. And you use that term Biden coalition. That's so important because we saw, you know, so much debate as to what won. What was the reason why uh, President Biden won Georgia? You have a lot of moderates pointing to that black voter turnout, which was so incredibly important and always is incredibly important to um, the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Black voters, particularly black women, I think are you know the backbone of the Democratic mm-hmm. Party. But you also have progressives saying, well, you know, pro- progressive voters, young voters also were driving that turnout in states like Georgia and other states across the country, particularly with younger people of color who uh, identify as progressive. So I think there's sort of this internal debate as to, you know, who is behind the electoral, recent electoral successes of the Democratic Party and really who gets a stake uh, in decision making. Right. And, and you know, what about the, the Hispanic vote, which I think is yes. often wrongly characterized as like we bring it up when we're talking about immigration because, oh, the Hispanic community right. must care so much about immigration. That must be their number one issue. And if you're being, you know, extreme on immigration, mm-hmm. that must be turning off Hispanic voters. But actually, the Republican Party did increasingly well with with Hispanic voters in the last election cycle. And, uh, you know, do, do the Democrats still kind of orient their thinking around, yeah, we, we, we got to win Hispanics, so so we're going to have a, you know, a pro-immigration policy because that's how we win them, when I think that's been like totally discredited thinking. Yeah, look, the Hispanic vote is so interesting because, you know, first of all, they're not monolithic. I'm from Florida, for example, grew up in Central Florida big Puerto Rican population. Uh, You know, Puerto Ricans in Central Florida tend to vote Democratic. But for example, if you go further down south to Miami, you have the Cuban vote. And uh, Cubans tend to vote more conservative. But of course, there's a generational shift within the Cuban voter bloc. You know, younger Cubans are, we tend to see voting um, more liberal or increasingly more liberal than um, older generations. So we can't say that the Hispanic vote is a monolith because there are so many different parts. And, you know, to your point, Point on immigration, I mean, so many different issues are impacting them as well. For example, um, and you're seeing Henry Cuellar deal with this in Texas's 28th district, abortion. You know, the Hispanic population tends to be uh, heavily Roman Catholic right. or um, evangelical or conservative Christian. So for someone like Henry Cuellar, you know, it's a rarity to see a Democrat who is very much uh, anti-abortion, but for his district, it actually works. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, obviously the economy, like everyone else, Hispanics are being impacted by inflation. They're being impacted by health care. So, you know, it is definitely, I would say, a bit of a a generalization to focus in on immigration. But I think we're seeing a lot of that conversation around Hispanic voters, particularly Hispanic Republicans in immigration right now, because we saw President Trump do so incredibly well with Hispanic voters in uh, South Texas and in those border communities, because I think there's this, um, you know, 
uh, assumption that Democrats make, say, oh, well, they're probably going to be more liberal on immigration when some tend to be more conservative. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a different world out <laughs> yes, there now. Yes, it is. It is. Well, Julia, thank you so much for joining me, and we'll have more Rising right after this. Kim, what's on your radar? Is Biden once again calling for regime change in Russia? In response to the reports coming out of Bucha, Ukraine, regarding dozens of civilians shot in what looked like executions, Biden is calling for Putin to be tried as a war criminal. But is he really going further than that? Remember, I got criticized for calling Putin a war criminal. Well, the truth of the matter is so it happened to Bucha. This warrants him, he is a war criminal. But we have to gather the information. We have to continue to provide Ukraine with the weapons they need to continue the fight. And we have to gather all the detail so this can be an actual have a war crime trial. This guy is brutal. And what's happening in Bucha is outrageous. And everyone's seen it. Do up you to agree Allah. Genocide? No, I think it is a war crime. I'am seeking more sanctions. Yes, I'll have time to ask that to you. He should be held accountable. Well, no, no, no. Go, go. The war, the war crimes up. Yes, I'm going to continue to add sanctions. Thank you. I'll let you know. Well, even if Biden isn't flat out calling for regime change specifically this time, he is clearly calling for a continuation of this war by saying we have to continue to provide Ukraine with the weapons they need to continue to fight. So I guess apparently seeing dead bodies strung out along the streets of Ukraine wasn't enough for Biden. Rather than aiding an end to the war by facilitating peaceful negotiations to stop the bloodshed, Biden is instead encouraging Ukraine to battle, battle it out. But until when? Until Russia leaves? Well, what if Russia won't leave the same way we didn't leave Afghanistan for 20 years or the way we still haven't fully left Iraq? Then what? Will the Ukrainians fight until every Ukrainian city is leveled and every man between the ages of 16 and 60 is killed? Is that the plan to turn it into Afghanistan? Meanwhile, ironically, the administration is doing everything it can to tiptoe around escalating the conflict to where the U.S. ends up in a war with Russia. Why is that? Why are we willing to continue to encourage Ukraine to fight a battle even we won't go near? In fact, no one is going near it, not one country, including Ukraine's direct neighbors. No one has jumped in to help them fight the battle. Instead, nation's leaders try to figure out how they can continue to supply Ukraine without directly poking the bear. So tell me, if Russia is being slaughtered by the Ukrainians, a country which is thought to have an inferior military compared to Russia, if they're so easy to defeat, like we've seen so much in the news and NATO is so strong, why hasn't anyone else jumped in, especially if people are going to throw phrases around like war crimes and genocide? Surely we would jump in if an actual genocide were happening. Now, to be clear, I'm not advocating for us to go to war. I'm simply making a point. We saw this play out last week after Biden called for regime change, saying Putin can't remain in power. The administration, as well as NATO allies, worried Biden's comments would provoke Russia. So they scrambled to de-escalate the situation by explaining away his comments as not serious. As you know, and as you've heard us say repeatedly, we do not have a strategy of regime change in Russia or anywhere else for that matter. I thought the adults were back in charge. Adults who think through their responses and are measured with their... Shoot, sorry. Let me go back to that. My prompter froze. Yeah, just start with 
I thought the adults were back in charge. Yep. Three, two, one. Okay. I thought the adults were back in charge. Adults who think through their responses and are measured with their words, not ones who spout off whatever, they th whatever they're thinking whenever they want. Or maybe Biden meant exactly what he said. Maybe he meant for Putin to be removed from power, but was then told by people surrounding him to not reveal the playbook. After all, we watched this exchange between Biden and Peter Ducey, where Biden tells Ducey he's not going to tell him what the response to the chemical weapons attack would be because it would ruin the element of surprise. And when you said a chemical weapon use by Russia would trigger a response in kind. It will trigger a significant response. What does that mean? I'm not going to tell you. Why would I tell you? You've got to be silly. The world wants to know? The world wants to know a lot of things. I'm not telling them what the response would be. Then, then Russia knows the response. So what if Biden's gaffe wasn't that he insinuated Putin should be ousted, but instead that he revealed it? If the plan is to topple a government, you wouldn't broadcast that to the world, would you? Instead, maybe you'd do exactly what Biden is doing, which is implement policies such as tough sanctions and continuing to encourage a deadly war. You would do this hoping the sanctions cause people to go broke, that they'd scramble for food, die of malnutrition or lack of access to imported medicines. The goal of widespread economic collapsing sanctions is to crush and in many cases even kill the average civilian. If you wanted to topple a government, you'd continue to engage them in military warfare until they go broke economically and emotionally. You'd want mothers to wail in the streets for their dead sons and for the war to touch nearly every life in hopes it would cause so much grief that it triggers anger, which then triggers unrest, which could then trigger a violent regime change. So maybe Biden meant it. Maybe he meant every word of it when he called for regime change in Russia. Maybe he realized making it blatantly obvious would trigger the war with Russia we've been attempting to avoid the war we continue to encourage Ukraine to fight rather than de-escalate. So this is just really unfortunate in my mind that we are not focusing as a country, as a country that claims that we're all about peace and facilitating democracy around the world, that we are not facilitating peaceful negotiations between Russia and Ukraine. Instead, the rhetoric is let's keep supplying Ukraine so that they can keep battling it out. This will ultimately turn them into Afghanistan now, look, I am just as horrified by the war crimes that are being committed. I've seen them, quite frankly, being committed by both sides. I mean, as people want to sit there and, oh, now you're both sides. And I don't care what you think or what you're going to say about that. I've seen the video with my own eyes. I've seen so many dead bodies, so much blood during this war. I don't know why I subject myself to it, but I've seen a lot of it. And it is happening on both sides, both sides. This is the way it is in war. And it's horrible. War should end. So... I, I we, sure war crimes. Maybe we could go after them for that. We would have to go after Ukraine for that as well. The Azov Battalion in particular. Um, but really, we just need to end this. Ukraine is going to be leveled. I mean, they're already being destroyed. What is the point of all of this? We really, you know, just escalating this up and now going just facilitating what I believe the administration has been wanting to do, what Hillary Clinton even talked about back when she would be sort of threatening Putin, uh, saying that his elections were illegitimate, you know, threatening using the language of regime change. Is that the ultimate plan that we're just going to sacrifice Ukraine and the Russian people until there's regime change? I mean, so to, <clears throat> I mean, I think there's certainly people, some people in the administration who would like to see like to see that happen. But to answer your question from the beginning of your radar, I think why would the NATO and the United States, you know, arm Ukraine 
and you know encourage them to defend themselves against the invasion, but not them, but not themselves going and fight. And I think the I think the answer is nuclear weapons. And you know if there weren't if nuclear weapons did not exist, we might be in the middle of a giant shooting war between NATO and Russia. I, th- Russia I think right we now. would. I mean, if yeah. nuclear weapons didn't exist. So much of our last, the history of the last right. seven we years would be so right. different. It, yeah. Hard to imagine nuclear wars, uh, nuclear weapons make it difficult in a good way. I mean, this deterrence theory, right. I guess, it, it difficult for major nations to to have direct confrontations with each other, which is good because a lot of people died if there was going to be right. direct confrontations between nations. So, but instead we have all these proxy wars with the funding, the funding and providing weapons to nations that can fight wars because they don't have nuclear weapons and they don't bring the risk of World War III, which, which, is, which is bad in other ways. Right. Now all these other people are fighting our battles because we can't fight them and we, the Russia can't fight. We can't fight each other directly, and we just kind of have this this elaborate game we play, where where less well off countries that don't have nuclear weapons, they're the ones who get hurt. That still doesn't make sense, and the reason is is the reason why we try to denuclearize countries such as North Korea and Iran is so that they cannot engage in warfare. Right? We want them to be disarmed, right. so that they so that they think twice about engaging in anything. So Ukraine is disarmed in this way. They don't have a nuke. I mean, uh, theoretically, uh, realistically, Russia could, right, just nuke Kiev. I mean, they could just do that tomorrow. And what could Ukraine even do about it? Nothing. That's the reason why you want to have the nukes and you don't want Iran or North Korea to have the, the to nukes because you you want to be able to, uh, you, know, you know, you want to be able to control them to some degree. Well, it's clearly I, not I, I working. Think that, I think I disagree with that, po- not with you, but with that policy. I, I'm, I, I don't know that, I mean, the, the, it seems like the most likely result from a country developing nuclear weapons is that it no longer has wars with other countries that have nuclear weapons. The, like, the only country, right, that used a nuclear weapon offensively in war is ours, is the United States. So with that exception aside, uh, nuclear weapons are not used in conflict, and countries that have them don't right, generally wage wars against countries that do. And if Russia used nuclear weapons... Then, you know, just the same way that Biden said if they use chemical weapons, there will be, first he blundered and said there will be a response in kind, then he said there will be a significant response. The same is understood about right. nuclear weapons, that if a country today, in a war, no, there were no other countries that had nuclear weapons, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Right. But now, now there are. And so if, if Russia nukes Kiev, then there is a, they, they know that there is a risk that NATO is, is going to fire back, which is supposed to be deterring them from right from doing that right yeah i mean but at the end of the day we are encouraging ukraine to continue battling it out and uh, you know again i understand that they have the right to defend themselves i just also think that there are certain times when it is better you're better to negotiate and not fight i mean i if i were robbed at gunpoint i would not fight back if it meant that it would risk my children being killed in the process i wouldn't personally do that so, you know, instead, there's got to be a negotiation that happens and we're not even facilitating this at all. Instead, he's saying, no, we're going to we're using these images of war crimes, which are being committed on both sides. And we're then saying, you know, and I saw the worst video of it last night, quite frankly, a horrific war crime that that of, of Ukrainians shooting. I mean, I, I don't I can't even think about the it. Russian it's soldiers. Or? No. The, yeah, they were uh, unarmed. They were all they were using him yeah. for target practice and then and then and then killed him ultimately uh so i mean look this is happening it's horrible and we have to somehow end this war 
But using this but rhetoric somehow is just meant is to... The war has to end by Russia withdrawing from Ukraine. Right. If Ukraine had marched into Russia... Well, it has to be a Russia, negotiation. If Ukraine marched into Russia and we were considering sending weapons to Ukraine to help their invasion, that would be an unconscionable act of provocation and war on our part that would be absolutely wrong. But the situation is the reverse. We're sending weapons to the people. No, I understand. Now, I think they should negotiate. I absolutely agree. And, and tactically, the talking about regime change and talk, you know, the, the way... This gets phrased by the administration is, I, I think, not well thought out. Although, on the whole, they have not been. We, we have not actually start, started World War III. They've resisted the very worst policy impulses. But I, I, I don't. I can't sit here and say we shouldn't send weapons to be. If they want weapons and we want to send them, they they're in the moral right because they're defending themselves. Right, and it's it's not as if the only thing stopping this war from ending is Ukraine not negotiating. I mean, Ukraine has been negotiating. U Ukraine has offered all sorts right. of concessions. There is another party that needs to also take negotiations seriously, right, and that's course, Russia. That's, exactly. But that's what I'm saying is that the U.S. needs to be facilitating and encouraging yeah. those peace talks between both of those countries. But we have more sway over Ukraine than we do over Russia. So we can facilitate Ukraine going to the table and actually doing a good faith negotiation. But instead, we're almost encouraging them to enter into this dogfight, and it doesn't end very well. And it's not ending well. And look, I get it. We could all sit here and say all day, well, Russia should leave. Russia should leave. That's just not realistic. And we have to be realistic. This is war. People are dying. But it's why is Ukraine giving up realistic? Why is Ukraine pulling out not realistic, but Ukraine saying, OK, you win. We're not fighting anymore. Why is that realistic? The, in the negotiation, Ukraine is still battling for Crimea and Donbass, areas that they haven't had control over for almost a decade. So it's, it, you know, why are they still but you were saying, saying it's, they, You're saying it's unrealistic to just say Russia should stop the invasion. Say, right, I mean, yeah, you're, it's unrealistic, right, because neither side is going to just do what we're sitting here saying they should do, right? And so it's unrealistic to hope that either side listens to us. But I just don't know why it's more realistic to think, Ukraine should, you know, lay down their arms and say we surrender than than to say no Russia should Go should pull out Russia. to avoid further casualties incurred by on both sides. Like isn't because it Ukraine's being leveled. So I mean Mariupol is leveled. I mean they're they're being yeah. leveled. So there's a difference between your soldiers that are going off to battle and they don't make it home and your and then on top of that on the Ukrainian side you have that as well as leveled cities and destruction. Right. So at some point you have to say, okay, you know, let's, I guess we're going to have to negotiate this out uh, rather than continue to hold on to, like I mentioned, territory that they but haven't had holding, control over. They've been holding talks. What, what do you think that right, they're I just, not I was just objecting, objecting to the word realistic. Right. Like, yes, they should, they should be negotiating right now. Yeah. They are. Or they, absolutely, yeah. I agree. But I just, I, I don't, I don't think it's unrealistic to expect them to continue to resist the occupation uh, as right as as uh, as the the defenders have done in all sorts of other conflicts that you know, we've seen in, in Afghanistan in in Syria in, in all in all sorts of like the defender in Vietnam in, in you know going back like the, the, it actually is realistic to expect heavy heavy resistance right. to go on and on and on and on and on and on when you're trying to occupy another country. Right. Or it could be de-escalated. I mean, and there are other ways to resist. Denmark did it during the World War II without having to go into actual conflict. So there's more ways than one to actually resist an yeah. occupier if you wanted to. 
Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, the, we should be definitely encouraging peace talks, encouraging the end of this war. And I don't see the U.S. doing that. And at the end of the, and also Ukraine is kind of, you know, they're beholden to whatever we want them to do because we give them so much money. They're not totally operating on their own and they haven't. So, yeah. you know, it's one of those things where we could be encouraging it. We could say we're not going to give you any more aid unless you guys actually go and sit down. But instead, we're saying we'll give you more weapons. How about that? All right. Well, we got to leave it there. Thank you, Kim. Tomorrow on Rising, Max Alvarez and Pamela Denise Long will be with us to weigh in on the news of the day. Plus, friend of the show, Brianna Joy Gray, returns. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Check that thing out. Go like, share, subscribe, that thing. Rate it, review it, all that. Do all that fun stuff. Yeah. High rating, like five stars. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks for bearing with us today. We had a number of hosting different people in we the did. chairs. There was some. Pre appreciate the indulgence. Yes. Thank you, Julia Manchester. Really appreciate it. Yeah, and thank you, Bacha. And thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Bye bye.